Chapter Eighteen of East by West: A Journey in the Recess, Volume Two, by Henry W. Lucy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eighteen: The Wonder of India. The tameness of the common birds in India has been nowhere more strikingly illustrated than in this crowded city. On a piece of waste ground skirting one of the main roads. A flock of cyrus numbering over half a hundred are daily accustomed to gather and discuss the occupation of Egypt, the Ilbert Bill, the alleged designs of Russia on India, and other matters of general interest. No one disturbs their consultation, no wicked boy throws stones at them, nor does any man raise gun to shoot. They have their talk out and go their way in search of whatever scraps householders may have provided for them. At the hotel, many more sparrows than guests sit down to breakfast. They fly in by open doors, across bedrooms into the dining room, walk about the floor, and sometimes alight on the tablecloth helping themselves to crumbs. Every morning, one particularly pert fellow flies into my bedroom. Perches on the inner window sill, and with shrill voice and mendacious detail, tells me he built the Taj. This is manifestly impossible, and is confuted by well-known facts. But if contradicted, he brings in two or three other fellows who, sitting on the bedrail, on the washstand, on my portmanteau, wherever there is clawhold, back him up with more details. Creating a shrill clamour from which I am at last glad to make escape. Before going to see the Taj, the wonder of India, it is advisable to visit the mausoleum of Kwaji Gyas, commonly known as the tomb of Itmudu Daula. This would of itself be worth seeing if it stood one hundred miles distant from the Taj, but the truth is that. After beholding the Taj, nothing of the same kind is worth looking at. Nevertheless, the tomb of Itmud has attractions of its own, and a history excelling in human interest that of many grander places. Kwaji Gyas was a soldier of fortune who came from Western Tartary in the hope of finding appointment in the service of the great Emperor Akbar. In this, he succeeded. But the foundation of his supreme fortunes was laid when his daughter Noor Mahal was born. She grew up in matchless beauty and lit in the breast of the heir apparent that glowing passion, the history of which is written in Moore's Light of the Harem. She happened to be engaged to Sheer Afghan, one of the nobles of the court, and being an exceedingly shrewd person, married him. A match with the emperor's son seemed more brilliant, but in those days it was by no means certain that an heir apparent would reach the throne. His very claim might prove fatal to him, and if he were poisoned, strangled, or walled up, his wife would be in sore straits. Sheer Afghan, on the contrary, was in a well-established position, not too high to invite hostility. And yet high enough to satisfy the reasonable expectations of Becky Sharp. When, however, Jehangir succeeded to the throne of Akbar, things were changed. Sheer Afghan was got out of the way, and his widow, otherwise inconsolable, married the emperor. 
the new empress immediately began to provide for her relations who at news of her advancement flocked in from tartary her father she caused to be made high treasurer and all her uncles her cousins and her aunts had fat places found for them about the court having no children by jehangir she concentrated her attention upon the advancement of her daughter by the hapless sheer afghan whom she married to a younger son of the emperor as a preliminary towards recovering the throne for him she induced her husband to put out the eyes of his eldest son khosru khosru's mother was naturally indignant at this nur mahal invited the lady to her apartments to talk the matter over walking round the courtyard she incidentally asked her visitor to look down a new well that had been dug and gently but firmly pushed her in this new family bereavement moved the heart of shah jehan the second son toward his unfortunate elder brother he went off to a quiet place in the south of india and sent back a messenger to say he could not endure the separation from his poor blind brother khosru touched by this sympathy went off to his brother who embraced him so affectionately that he strangled him nur mahal looked upon this proceeding with approval since it left only one life between her son-in-law and the throne shah jehan must be removed and all would be well but jehan as his little comedy with his poor blind brother testified was both crafty and determined it became a game of pull devil pull baker and shah jehan won coming to the throne on the death of his father he put out the eyes of his brother nur mahal's son-in-law impartially strangled all his other blood relations and cast into prison the dowager empress here through long years this catherine of hindustan ate out her lion-heart comforted only by the memory of the days when she had been first at the council board had led the imperial troops into battle and had caused her name to be struck on the coin issued from the imperial mint the first and last time till the epoch of victoria that a woman's name was so honoured in india nur mahal as will appear from this simple story was a woman of strong family affection and it was in obedience to this impulse she built this great mausoleum itmud Daula, for the entombment of her father she sleeps by his side life's fitful fever over only her story left to light up a lurid page in the early history of india the taj was built by shah jehan apart from its architectural beauties it is the most magnificent tribute ever raised by man to the memory of a dead wife jehan had married the niece of the terrible empress nur mahal mumtaz e mahal had inherited much of the beauty of her aunt and might have developed something of her ambition and unscrupulousness but jehan was a stronger man than his father and had his ideas of the proper place of woman in politics he would not let his wife meddle with the imperial government but he loved her very dearly and when she died resolved that she should have the most magnificent tomb in india hence the taj by common consent the tomb 
as distinct from all others in the world like the fort the taj stands on the banks of the jumna seen from its marble terrace the river second in sanctity only to the ganges presents a strange appearance its wide bed is for five-sixths of its extent dry land the enfeebled current running through a narrow channel on the other side under the walls of the taj a great field of wheat is growing among the grey sandbanks in the very middle of the river-bed when the rains come in june the newly-born river will rush downward in a mighty stream washing high up the walls of the taj and the cornfield will lie some fathoms deep in the meanwhile the harvest will be garnered in and when next autumn the river dries up again a rich bed will be ready to receive the sowing for a new harvest i suppose there is no other instance of a river so rich in gifts as this to give fish at its flood and corn at its ebb like the minarets at benares the taj dominates the city its white domes are seen almost from every point of view it is approached through a magnificent gateway built of red sandstone elaborately carved and eloquent with sentences from the koran at the end of an avenue of dark cypress trees the taj reveals itself it is built of white marble raised upon a platform of red sandstone the marble as purely white to-day as when it was polished the building realises to a great extent the structure of the new jerusalem which john in his dream at patmos beheld when the first heaven and the first earth had passed away the great city whose quote, foundations were garnished with all manner of precious stones end quote. the first a jasper and the twelfth an amethyst the uttermost ends of the earth were put under tribute to furnish building materials to the taj jaipur sent white marble the rare yellow marble came from the banks of the near buddha and the black from charcoal china contributed the crystal the punjab sent jasper the cornelian came from baghdad turquoises from tibet and agate from yemen ceylon loaded the emperor's commissioners with lapis lazuli the red sea was dragged for coral bundlekund sent garnets Puna produced its diamonds nerbudda sent rockspar marchin yielded its famous philosopher's stone gwalior paid tribute in lodestone vilayet in chalcedony lanka in sapphires whilst persia presented onyx and amethyst to her powerful neighbour this rare wealth of precious stones is disposed over the marble with infinite skill and artistic taste where the marble ends and the inlaying begins is to be told only by the varied colour happily the taj has escaped the fate of the palaces within the fort the british soldier flushed with victory and animated by extra rations of grog and new-born love of art has not come poking round the walls with point of bayonet nor has the jat swooped down on the place nor the maharatta overrun it it is as perfect as when nur jahan was laid here and looking upon its perfectness shah jahan conceived the notion of building a similar mausoleum on the other side of the river connecting the two by a silver bridge 
the grave of the beautiful nur jehan is dug in a vault underneath the level floor by which access is obtained to the cenotaph a flight of marble steps leads to the solemn gloom of the chamber the light falling like dim break of day full on the end of the tomb bearing the inscription of the empress's name this is the crowning beauty of the idea of the immortal architect the chamber all gloom and only the name of the dead wife illumined by the soft daylight struggling down the staircase whilst we were enjoying the beauty of the inlaid work easily enough distinguished when the eye grows accustomed to the half-light of the chamber there came bustling down the steps an anna-touting intruder with a lantern whose vulgar farthing light he shed upon the inscription of the tomb and proposed to carry round the chamber so that we might rub our noses against the masterpieces of the nameless artists he was a sepoy and i confess to finding it difficult to repress the wish that he had died during the mutiny he and a worthy colleague with another lantern were fluttering around the upper chamber when we arrived pestering visitors to note this and that to be seen only with their lantern and taking all the graciousness out of the place the authorities who take such infinite care of the taj should confer a last favour upon the public by having these obnoxious pests removed shah jehan never began his mausoleum on the other side of the river wanting too early a tomb for himself he was laid by the side of his lost bride the tomb being magnificent enough even for emperor it stands on the left-hand side leaving nur jehan's undisturbed in the centre and bears an inscription of which the following is a rough translation quote, the magnificent tomb of the king inhabitant of the two heavens riddevan and cool the most sublime sitter on the throne in the starry heavens dweller in paradise shah jehan badshah ghazi peace to his remains heaven is for him his death took place the twenty-sixth day of rujub in the year ten seventy-six of the hijri a d sixteen sixty five from this transitory world eternity has marched him off to the next each grave is covered by an immense block of marble exquisitely inlaid a marble screen carved so delicately that it looks like a web of lace-work encircles the cenotaphs that stand in the centre of the marble hall above the vault the walls of this larger chamber are inlaid to the roof which rises in a dome above the cenotaphs this marble dome possesses amidst other beauties the most melodious echo ever heard a single note sung below it is repeated as if by an angelic choir dying away in the faintest far-off trill the building of the taj occupied twenty thousand workmen twenty-two years and cost three millions sterling even in the age when there were no trades unions and no possibility of strikes some details are preserved in a persian manuscript of contemporary date the yellow marble cost four pounds per square yard the black marble cost nine pounds the crystal fifty-seven pounds the lapis lazuli 
one hundred and fifteen pounds whatever might have been the wages of the workmen the masters of art were paid on an imperial scale considering the value of the money at that date the overseer was paid at the rate of one hundred pounds a month a similar wage being allotted to the chief illuminator and the master mason it is perhaps interesting to add that the platform of red sandstone on which the taj stands measures nine hundred and sixty four by three hundred and twenty nine feet that the terrace of white marble built on this platform and from which the beautiful structure rises is three hundred and thirteen feet square that the roof is uplifted seventy feet from the terrace that the dome seventy feet in diameter is one hundred and twenty feet high and that the gilt crescent which surmounts the dome is two hundred and sixty feet from the ground the perfection of the architect's art is told in the fact that one looking upon the building does not think whether it is large or small or of any geometrical shape it is simply perfect something to be seen not once but a hundred times in all the varied aspects of weather and hour it is a chameleon among architectural works in the early morning whilst dawn is breaking it seems coloured a light blue rose-tinted beneath the rising sun dazzling white at noontide violet colour before an impending storm crimson at sunset pearly white under the moonlight always a thing of beauty a joy for ever End of chapter 18